0: What science has taught me, and what relatively few scientists will say, although it motivates them every day, is that with everything that we know about stuff, the more we know, it's like, knowledge is not a closed system. It's not like, oh, we know that now, we can put that on the shelf. Every time we think that's true, we come to realize that that is not true and that that needs to be taken down because there are more questions. Questions multiply as fast or faster than our knowledge does. And so looking out and and seeing things that you might be able to understand um, is a pleasure, but you have to also admit the pleasure of not knowing what's beyond what you know.
1: So beautiful so Hey there, everyone. I am Seth. Welcome back to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Uh, short answer to that question. Yeah, you can say that at church and you should. I'm excited that you're here. Today is episode, I think it is episode 113, which is crazy, right? That's It's a lot of hours. And thank you for those of you that have been here since the beginning. Um, And also thank you to those of you that this is the first time you're listening. I hope that you'll stick around and see what you hear. Let me know what you hear, what speaks to you. I'm excited for today. I thought back on the years that I've been doing this and I just want to say thank you so much to the patron supporters of the show, to those of you that rated and reviewed the show, So much, so, so much. Thank you. It is literally not possible. Literally impossible to do this um, without you people. And I'll be honest, sometimes I get discouraged and I chat with many of you and y'all are a blessing in my life. And so thank you. If you haven't supported the show, consider doing that. Like literally. One of the new things that I'm doing actually starting with this episode is you can see at a, I forget what level. I think I call it Salty the Songbook, um, which if, if you grew up in the church or are familiar with it, uh, that'll make you laugh just right there. And if not, go to YouTube and type in Salty the Songbook. Um, but anyway, you can see the video of the conversation that Paul and I had today, and I tr- I'm going to try to record every single one of these that I can this year. I won't promise they'll all be available to be recorded uh, on the video because that's just not always the case. Some of these are done via phone and et cetera. However, this one is. And so those of you in that Patreon tier, you will find that today. I think it's a couple bucks a month. I forget which one it is. Um, you can watch that, and I hope you already have. Science if you grew up in the type of church that i did or the type of school that i did has been relegated to something that apparently is out to make god small is out to break faith is out to do so many things that are detrimental to the health of you and me as, as, a, as a person that's just not true it's just not and so I chatted with paul wallace who wrote a book called love and quasars and i bought his book a few months back and i loved it like it is so good the way that it's put together the the metaphors the the usage of science it really really is so good and so it was my privilege to talk to paul a bit about science what the heck a quasar is how we should read the bible what wonder and mystery looks like to someone that has been trained like in planetary atomic nuclear science like just literally what someone that has that much knowledge like what wonder do they see and what god do they see when they look out because they've just got a different foundation than i do and so i really hope that you enjoy this conversation with paul wallace let's do this thing Welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm happy you're here. I wish I don't have a cup of coffee, or I would cheers with you there. Um, I just I just finished it, so I'm excited that you're here. And thanks for making the time. I don't even, what day is it? Thursday. Thanks for making the time on this Thursday um, to pop onto the show. You're welcome. So I like to start off with the same question because I think uh, background context matters when we talk about faith, and uh, your your story implies everything that you do now. If someone asked, you know, Paul, kind of walk me through what makes you, you, and you go through that really in brief in your book, but what would you say are kind of those high points that you're like, yeah, when I, when I reflect back, like these are the things that matter and they're why I do what I do today.
0: Okay. Well, I guess uh, the main thing to know is that I grew up um, in, in a scientifically literate Baptist household and which i think there's probably there were probably more of them at the time than there are now but what that meant to me was my my dad was a was a professor at georgia tech and knew a lot of science and talked about science a lot there were a lot of science books around the house um and we also went to church every time the doors were open which was more often uh, in those days than it is now Uh, i was there and i was there in church probably three times a week. Hmm. Um, and I loved it. I loved church growing up. It was a place that I felt most at home outside my own house and all my best friends you know, all through my growing up years, all my best friends were at church. Um, and so I really grew up with both these things hand in hand and began to wonder about how science and, uh, sort of God or faith, um, worked at a pretty early, early, pretty early age, I began to wonder about it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the that's kind of the background as far as the book goes. Um,
1: what about so what about your background apart from the book? So you hold two hats now. So you're a professor. Right. You're obviously extremely intelligent because you have like 17 PhDs, and that's that's hyperbolic. <laughs> no, <I've> but... <laughs> it feels like 17,
0: but I've only got one. So you've got an
1: MDiv. You have a PhD in what? Astrophysics? Nope. Is no, that right?
0: my, my PhD was actually in nuclear physics, but
1: my research <laughs> after
0: graduate school was in astrophysics.
1: So I don't really know enough about either of those to know the distinction. Um, but I'm curious okay. now. So how how do those break apart?
0: Well, nuclear physics is the study of atomic nuclei. Okay. And it involves, um, my work involved uh, working in a lab in, in what's called a particle accelerator, proton accelerator. Lab. That's like
1: the Large Hedron Collider, right? Like a particle accelerator like, like that? It's like
0: that, but it was smaller. It was smaller. It was the size of about uh, an, an average-sized gymnasium, roughly. So huh. it was a smaller place. But um, it was experimental work and it was investigating atomic nuclei, very small scale. Hmm. Um, and then when I graduated, got my PhD and went on and started doing research after that, uh, I started doing astrophysics. Now there was, a, the, 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 there was a link between the two. They weren't completely separate. But I started doing astrophysics and started studying things you know, on the largest possible scale. So I went from the super tiny to the super large.
1: So you'll see me. I'll reference back down to the notes here. So there's a part at the beginning of your book and, and I buried the lead. So the name of your book is Love and Quasars. And um, so I had this yesterday. I was rereading it. Um, so I've read it twice now uh, because it's an easy read and it's not insanely mm-hmm. long. And so I really appreciate that. Um, Those are both uh,
0: highly intentional. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, because um, science can get I mean, my wife is a nurse and sometimes she'll say things and I'm like, I don't if you yeah. want me to talk my, like a my banker
0: too. And I, and I experienced exactly the
1: same thing. I'm like, I don't know what you just said. Yeah. Oh, shoot. Your wife's a nurse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 She'll say things. And I'm like, I, are they okay? Like, what does that mean? Like, I, <laughs> I don't, everybody's alive. It was a good day. It's a bad. I don't understand. Yeah. And then I'll often tell her, I'm like, you know, if you want, I could just start talking in banking terms, which is what I do for a living. Okay. But she, she equally gets like the, I don't know what you're talking about right now Yeah, um, yeah. at a high language level. barrier. Yeah. So my son asked me yesterday, we were at the doctor and he asked me, he's like, what's a quasar. And so I pulled up a YouTube video and yeah. I tried to show him that and he was bored. I kept fast forwarding and then we just saw some artist rendering and he goes, so it's just a flashlight. I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> but that's what the <laughs> that's pictures, that's what the pictures look like. I really wanted to know. So how would you explain a quasar to a 10 year old? Um, because honestly, I have about that education level when it comes to quasars.
0: Okay, let's start with the Milky Way. Okay. Milky Way is a galaxy.
1: Okay. Yes. Okay. I'm with you.
0: Now, the galaxy didn't always exist. There was a time earlier in its life when it was much younger, just like you and me, right? There was a time, there was a time we were born. Um, but it turns out that when a galaxy is formed, when a galaxy is born, it's extremely bright. It pumps out a lot of energy when it's very young. Kind of like people, right? (laughs) Um, They tend to lose the energy as they get older. (laughs) And so, what a quasar is, is basically a galaxy in its very early stages of formation. Now, the deal is, though, and this is where it gets a little bit head trippy, is that the only galaxies that we see forming these days are the ones that are very, very far away because we're seeing the light from them light that we see has been traveling for billions of years. The big galaxy forming stage in the universe was billions of years ago. So the only things that we're seeing that are only galaxies that we see that are still forming are ones that were formed billions of years ago, and we're just now seeing the light from them. So the bottom line of all that, the clip and save, all you need to know is that quasars are among not only the brightest things we can see, but the most distant that we can Huh. All quasars that we see are extremely far away uh, on, a, on a cosmic scale.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I do want to ask you about scale because you break down in the Washington Monuments um, mm-hmm. a bit about scale. But I want to get there in a minute. So when I'm looking at the night sky, um, realistically, every star that I see is I, – I always, always understood it's a sun. Some of those could be mm-hmm. quasars, I, I guess, as well. Or can I not see them no, with the not, naked eye? Not
0: individual stars, no. No, you, you can't see any quasars with your eye. Oh,
1: because it's the galaxy. It's not the same. Right, they're
0: galaxies. There's only one, ga- well, there's only a handful of galaxies you can see, other than the Milky Way, you can see with your eye. Hmm. And they're all very close to us. Um, all quasars are too dim to see with your eye. Huh. Sorry to say,
1: no, that's that's fine. Um, because people have made nice little YouTube renderings that 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 confuse me, right. me and my ten-year-old. Right. Um, so you talk about in the beginning the importance of uh, in your book uh, the importance of having a realistic view of science, and then you you basically say, what is official science? So. What is official science? Like when we talk, when we say the word science, what are we intending to mean? Because I think people say science and they mean a lot of things, just like people say banking okay. and they mean a lot of things yeah. or ministry yeah. and they mean a lot of things.
0: Well, when I, when, I, when I use the word science in the book, I'm not talking about technology or, you know, not talking about computers, not talking about, uh, you know, medical technology i'm not talking about uh, artificial intelligence i'm talking about science as a process of understanding and uh, revealing the world around us a process of asking questions you know and and framing experiments and getting you know answers within that sort of it, it's it's a process of discovery mm-hmm. that's what i mean by science
1: okay um, and so by the inverse of that, how would you then say the relationship to science and religion should be?
0: Well, the, I, I think I think the simplest word to use is cooperative as opposed to uh, con, um, opposed and it, 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 they're not opposed to one another. I, I I think that there is some friction between them, but I, I think ultimately, ultimately they, they are complementary.
1: Yeah and cooperative all right so where is it at you where is it at come here to me book um i don't usually dog ear the problem is i highlight it a lot here we go so there's a concept that you break down and you reference it four or five times and it's called chess boxing and that's one word and i didn't know that that was a thing um, I didn't
0: either until very recently. Yeah. And so I ago. can't
1: be the only one. And then you use that metaphor of chess boxing as I guess, you know, having to do science, which would be head and boxing, which would be, you know, total being faith, fine, religion, mm-hmm. wholeness, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. So can you break down kind of that metaphor of chess boxing, kind of how it matters, how you're using it in the book to kind of break through the logic of both religion and sure. and science?
0: Chess boxing is an actual sport and it's, it's, it's a pretty big deal in parts of Asia and Europe and it's starting to you know make a little uh, make a little showing here in North America. but uh, basically it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a game where in where the you alternate between rounds of chess and rounds of boxing. It opens with chess, the two players compete on a chess board then they get into the boxing ring and they you know they have a, a two or three minute round and then they come back and somehow they score this and there's a winner at the end um so basically it's a combination of chess which is of course a mind game and boxing which is a which is a game a, a physical game um as well as a mind game i think um but the but the point i wanted to make in the book was this was that um was that sometimes science tries to do more than it really can like a like a native boxer who tries to play chess but can't quite do it right
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh science sometimes exceeds its limits exceeds its boundaries and sometimes faith does something similar as a native chess player sometimes it gets good at chess and thinks oh it can box also and so it tries to it tries to do science also and so the analogy basically is that we have a native boxer and a native chess player who are trying to both do everything. So sometimes science overreaches its limits. Not going to attack what I mean by that. Sometimes uh, faith overreaches its 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 capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and because both try to do everything, chess and boxing. And it turns out that when science and faith try to do everything in that way, that it, get, it turns into a mess.
1: I want to talk about those limits. So what would you if you had to draw a line in the sand so again let's just use the metaphor of my son um because honestly he asks the most scientific questions of anybody that I know but i think that's a lot of his age you know everything he's he's beginning sure. you know he's coming in he's about to be in 6th grade and so you know we're starting to talk about things that aren't just repetitive as we slowly build upon we had native americans also they were named this also they were the power you know every year we just build a new name so right. uh, things are getting more difficult so what should be a limitation of science because science seems to constantly push the boundaries of knowledge and so what sure. is what is a what is the scientific limitation i guess of science
0: well the example i use in the book is that science um sometimes you see people who are scientists reject scripture say mm-hmm uh on the grounds that it is contradictory for example uh which of course is true within scripture there's all kinds of voices and sometimes there are contradictions sometimes those contradictions are fruitful and sort of lead to new questions that are fruitful sometimes they're just dumb contradictions it just don't mean anything that aren't important but the problem for the scientists is that there are contradictions and in other words science some scientists look at the Bible in the same way that you would look at a data set. You want, you want a clean, complete data set. No matter what science you're doing, the cleaner and the less contradictions that are in your data set, the better life is going to be. And so I use that as an example of treating scripture like a data set. You're taking the scientific mindset and applying it to scripture. Yeah. And I think that's as, as I, that would be a line for science.
1: And then, so what would be the line for faith or religion? And, and I mean that in so much as not just Christian faith, because that's not the only religion or faith. Sure. So sure. what should be a healthy boundary as the two interact?
0: Well, the, uh, the crossing of that boundary um, is most evident in, uh, for example, creationism. Religious people, Ken Ham, sort of uh, young earth creationists is mm-hmm. the term, who insist that certain scientific ideas are out of bounds based on their understanding of scripture. So they're going the opposite direction. They're taking the understanding of scripture and applying it outside the limits of, of the text and saying, okay, evolution can't be true because Genesis contradicts it. Yeah. That is taking a a faith mindset and, and, and trying to do science with it because you're using faith to reject science and you can only reject science by doing science. You can't reject science doing, you know, any other way. So yeah. the faith is trying to do science. And and in that case, it, it, it uh, makes a mess of it.
1: Yeah. So how, I don't do this well. How do you find, so I have that conversation with a lot of people about, you know, because I am not an, an inerrantist and I mm-hmm. think I'm saying that right. I, th- I mm-hmm. I'm a literalist in the fact that, I think that we should read scripture in the way that the author, I think, intended it to be read in the old sense of the word literalist. Yeah, yeah. to the person that read it, like, like I've used this example before, but a thousand years from now, the word Snapchat means something to me, and I don't know what it will mean to people a Mm -hmm. thousand years from now. And to read that word literally would be to talk about an iPhone and the way that it works, and social media and the way that that works, and the cultural context and relevancy. I want to drill deeper on creation and evolution um, and how okay. the two interplay, because you kind of talk about it a bit in your book that, you know, the word creation and the word evolution aren't necessarily saying the same thing. And maybe I'm, inf- I'm saying that wrong, you know, uh, you know, religiously we're talking about the moral, the why, the God behind, mm-hmm. and then evolution is just the, like the mechanical how. Um, or right. am I, or am I saying that wrong? Like, can you break that apart a little bit further? Cause I struggle to have a conversation with people that do that because we approach scripture entirely differently, which is a bigger chat than science. Right. And it's also a bigger right. chat than faith.
0: Are, are you talking about, um, when I talk, when I talk about, uh, the two being more or less independent. And I say that, um, creation is a theological idea. Yes, It implies certain, it, You know, talking about about creation implies uh, relationships between us and God, relationships between us and one another. It's about, um, it's theological. Whereas evolution, uh, when you talk about evolution, you're implying certain observations have been made and certain theories applied, and and they're just separate things. Like I use in the book, you know, you hold up a grapefruit and you say, Mm -hmm. is this yellow or is it spherical? Mm -hmm. And It's both, right? To say, is it creation or evolution? It's, uh, I think that uh, is, as as non, in that part of the book, I'm saying that's as nonsensical as saying, is is this grapefruit yellow or is it spherical? Because it's both. And those two, those two things are independent. Yellow and spherical, right? Um, Now, I don't necessarily advocate that point of view, but I do describe that point of view in, in my book. Yes. And, and also, I, I would say, uh, if, if I can, that that's an excellent way to start with an 11 year old or a 12 year old or a sixth grader.
1: Just go get a Just piece of fruit about, out of the fridge.
0: Yeah, that's right. Right, and, and to talk about, I think using that idea is a great place to start when you're talking to young kids about this stuff.
1: There's a part in here where you say, uh, similarly, the theological term creation implies a relationship between the creator and the creation, while the scientific term evolution implies just an observation about all of mm-hmm. the data set that we have. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, t- 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 so what do we do then when you say that to someone and it's in a fundamentalist mentality? And they're like, yeah, but if, if we're talking about evolution, that means that God is not all powerful. And you, you go through this, although I got slightly confused, Paul. Um, there's a part in here. Let me find it. So you say, you know, there's a few different ways to think about, you know, omnipotence or God. You say there's three, but I only found two. One would be process theology, and the other was natural theology. I didn't actually see the third, unless I missed it. It's entirely possible uh, I did. Maybe I missed it myself. Like you said, there's three, and you said here's the first process, is the second, and then you say all three perspectives outlined here, um, you know, emphasize cooperation over competition. But there may be an implied. Oh, oh no, I
0: don't know what it was. It was um, independence. The independence model. I was I was counting that as a third because Okay. The okay. independence model, uh they cooperate by ignoring each other. Okay.
1: Okay. Okay. So okay. That that's how I was counting that as a third. That okay, so that's the prior chapter. Okay, sorry. I got in the weeds there for a second. I literally wrote really was right. like, it's well, right. where's number three? I saw number one, I saw number two, where's <laughs> where's number three? Um, so can you define then what you mean when you say national natural theology and what you mean when you say process theology? Because those are Um, jargon, theological jargon, for lack of a better word. And I think I'm with you, but I want to make sure everyone listening is.
0: Yeah. Natural theology is, is of looking to creation, looking to nature, looking to science to see what we can learn about God. And it's really not any different than, you know, looking at the paintings of Van Gogh and learning something about the artist from looking at the paintings, Mm. You know, we're listening to Prince and learning something about who Prince is by listening to Prince's music. Um, that's natural theology, just looking at creation and drawing conclusions about the nature of God based on creation. And for some people, it goes so far as to say that we can prove God by looking at creation. No, I don't think that's true. But some people can would would say that we can actually prove that there is actually a God by looking at creation. and. That is also natural theology, so okay. that's natural theology. Okay, uh, process theology is a much more intensive, total reworking of the Christian faith, um, and it makes it, it it essentially smooths off a lot of the rough edges between traditional Christianity and science, and puts the two into a single system that's more or less self-consistent um and it's very uh deeply philosophical um but that's process theology
1: i need to visit that because i talked about open theism Way many years ago. That's not quite the same thing as process theology. No, but the, the, there are some it. overlap. You know, yeah.
0: the Venn diagrams yeah. do overlap. Yeah.
1: yeah, I'm going to have to dig into that, but that that will require many, many more hours of reading. Um, and, I don't,
0: and I don't get into it in the book at all. But I am, I, I am very, although I don't really cross over that line. I am deeply, deeply sympathetic to uh process theology. Why? Um, because it 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 resolves some problems that are big problems, like um you know, the arbitrariness of suffering
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and also just how to sort of frame Christian belief within an evolutionary context, mm-hmm. um, which is one thing that you just can't avoid if you take science seriously, the idea of an evolutionary uh, story uh, that you just can't avoid that. Yeah. And so it, it it resolves some some of those tensions
1: right there. Would you call yourself a process theologian or you just no, like you just like some of the practices or some of the ideas? I, I like some of the ideas, but okay. in the end I
0: just can't do it because I feel like it And I've I I've got friends who are process theologians and I hear them railing at me, but in my <laughs> mind it it tends to flatten the world out a little too much and nail it down and smooth off the edges a little too much for my taste. Um, it, it, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, no, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I have a question and you infer that the discovery is noteworthy. And so I want to, if it's all right, I want to read a part of here. So you talk about sure. gamma rays, which I recently learned with my son cause he's learning about spectrums and light waves and yeah. Isaac Newton and, uh, So I've been quizzing him. You know, what are the um, you know on the frequencies here on the spectrum? What can't we see? And he's like, you know, infrared, X-ray, gamma ray, radio, and then you know the normal, you know, violet, all all that stuff. Right. And he's like, gamma. So we're all going to be the Hulk. And I'm like, no. And you make the same joke in here. And so (laughs) you you say, um, you know, gamma rays stream down constantly from the sky. And you're talking about uh, a scientific discovery that you did, and you say, you know, at the time, very few quasars were known to emit gamma rays, making my discovery noteworthy. So, what did you do? Like, what were you like? How did you? What is that? So, you you talk about, I guess, proving? No, not proving. Finding? I don't I don't know what the right word is. This yeah, finding. It's like suppose you went to the
0: forest and you found a tree that didn't really fit anybody else's taxonomy of trees you didn't really fit in the in the system anywhere Mm -hmm. you know because it had its bark had certain characteristics its leaf shape was a little odd the way its leaves were clustered its fruit looked a little different and didn't really fit into anything
1: Mm -hmm.
0: any previous category and so after you spend some time you know comparing your tree to everything else you start to realize you've discovered a new species of tree yeah yeah uh, that's kind of logically what happened is that um, I just discovered a quasar now finding a quasar is not a big deal it's no no more of a big deal than finding a new tree somewhere that nobody's ever noticed before right yeah. that's easy to do but to find this particular species of quasar was a little unusual.
1: Its characteristics were odd. yeah why is that a big deal like why does that matter to me to science to you like why oh like why is know, it a big it, deal?
0: And when one very real sense, it doesn't make a difference at all. This thing was 7 billion lives away and uh, has virtually zero effect on your life or my life. But it matters to me and to some others because uh, it's just a new, well, for two reasons. One is that we, we've we learned something about the world that we didn't know before. It's a small thing. You know, it's it's one tiny little object on the shelf of knowledge, you know, uh, down in sub basement seven, you know, it's a tiny little bit of knowledge, but to me it's important. And it was personally important because, um, I felt at the time as if I had made a connection with the universe that I had been able to look at something that was billions of light years away, which is inconceivably distant. I could I could sit around all day long and try to paint analogies, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't tra- I couldn't relate to you adequately the distance, and I felt like I had connected with this object that is perfectly real, as real as you and I, seven billion light years away. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, that's a bit of a miracle yeah. that I could that 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 that's even possible.
1: Yeah. Well, it's also, so, it's also, I don't, I don't really believe in luck, but it's, um, serendipitous that the technology exists and your brain exists and the instruments exist absolutely. that you happen to, cause you could have also missed it because, missed it. um, it, it's going to shoot right past earth and go to whatever. I don't know which yeah. direction the universe is going. I think it's going yeah. in all directions. It is. <laughs> yeah. Which, which I've actually, I'm going to ask you now. So I understand that the universe is expanding because I don't always talk to to someone that knows their stuff um, about about science uh, and expanding to nowhere and everywhere at the same time. And I'm probably saying that poorly, but it's the best way I can explain it. That's
0: about as good as I've heard it said. Perfect.
1: Perfect. (laughs) Um, But is, where's the center? So like if light, cause light's going to go both ways, like cause light's outstretching, but it's also coming here as well. So where is it going like when it gets to this, like, you know what I mean? Like, what's the, uh, there must be a destination. Um,
0: well, or yes. An,
1: or or and, an origin. And I don't mean it in the Big Bang sense. I, I, like, I mean, literally, like, is there a way to mathematically fix where it's at?
0: No. Um, that'll be unsatisfying. And um, I'm trying to think of the simplest way to say this for our listeners. If I had 10 minutes with you, with a diagram I could draw for you, I could help. But here's what is, did not happen with the Big Bang. And this is a very popular misunderstanding that there was, you know, space sitting around empty, you know, X, Y, Z, three-dimensional space, mm-hmm. sitting around empty. And then all of a sudden into that space occurred this boom and that, that boom happened at a location and that's the center that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But that didn't work that way because, um, space itself, you have to understand, uh, when we believe this ever since Einstein, he convinced us that space itself is a thing that itself, uh, is a player in the, in the drama here. Um, and space itself in a, was was wrapped up in that bang. Okay, there was no space into which the bang happened. Okay, um, space itself was created at the moment of the bang. And think of space kind of like suppose you were on a balloon. So suppose imagine a balloon, mm-hmm. and you're a point on that balloon, mm-hmm. and you can't get inside or outside. You're stuck on the balloon. Okay. The balloon is uh, finite, right? There's there's not an infinite amount of area on the balloon, but it's also not bounded. There's no walls anywhere on the surface of the balloon. There's no place that, where, you, where you go, and then all of a sudden, the balloon ends. Space is more like that. Space is more like if I go in that direction ahead, and if I go long enough, I'll end up back where I started. I won't, there's no wall anywhere there's no end of stuff anywhere huh so obviously this is going to be hard to for listeners to imagine um and it essentially involves getting more free dimensions into the picture yeah so it's it's you know yeah it takes a little bit of uh background work to yeah get a clear
1: picture of well it. yeah it's just that's just the way my brain works um you know if it's if it's if it's emitting somewhere else it's got to be coming or to anyway it doesn't matter right right i've this new song in my you i don't know yeah. if you watch um or if you've ever watched the watchman and for those listening if you're under a certain age probably don't watch the watchman it's on hbo but there's a character in there named dr manhattan are you familiar with him
0: no, I know the premise of the show, but I've never seen it.
1: So Doctor Manhattan effectively steps into some kind of mechanic in some some kind of mechanism. There's a mistake, and he literally is atomized. And then over the course of time, he he's knitted back together. He still has all of his memories, but he also exists everywhere. And the reason I bring that up is there's a part in here where you talk about after you you know you measured um, the gamma rays coming out of the quasar. It's a big deal. You're exuberant, and so you say, "You know, I can still see the scientific vision that emerged from my victory walk on that hot Maryland day. Corks were buzzing, frenzied atoms were moving in long molecules of DNA." You, you go on to talk about birds flying across the the globe, Jupiter's red spot still turning, stars are cycling through their lives, and you just keep on going as you like zoom out into the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason, it made me think of um, so he kind of that that character exists in and out of all times, and so everywhere that he is, he's there but okay. he's he's also here and there and there's a there's a line in the movie where he's like you know I'm, I'm in all like when he's about to die he's like I'm in all the I'm in all the good places with you right now at the same mm-hmm. moment because that's mm-hmm. where I want to be um, and that for some reason it made me it gave me a different perspective of time and I say that to say you have a story about time where there's twins one takes off one comes back can you rip apart a bit about how time matters in a religious frame when we're thinking about God, when we're using a data set from science, because I think that we think of time 24 hours, or I guess right. a year even has changed, you know, from the Gregorian and the Julian calendar. Right. But time is, time is the, the clock that drive time is the engine that drives, I think most everything that we do. And so in a religious sense with science knowledge, How is time bigger and both smaller than what most people think that it is in its 24-hour day?
0: You mean um, you want a theological idea of time or are you asking for like a description of time from sort of uh, Einstein's point of view, like well, I mean uh, I
1: know like, Einstein um, if you've watched Interstellar, I'm assuming that that is bad science, but maybe it's not. You know, time uh, is mostly
0: it was right. Mostly it was right.
1: Yeah. Well yeah. if if you haven't watched it and you're listening, go watch the darn movie because it's it's gripping and it'll it's 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 time in the story of a father and a daughter and which makes it memorable. Mm-hmm. But no time at a cosmic scale, because we referenced scale earlier and so um, you know when we think about theology and we think about time, should time be a thing that we 're concerned with time for creation days, hours millennia centuries or should we not even really be concerned with it
0: oh i think um I think we should i think that um you know my I think one of my first real religious experiences that I had as a child um came when I first came face to face with what we call today deep time is when I first realized you know when I was young I knew that dinosaurs came before people did right mm-hmm. but I never had a, a a sense beyond that but when I was maybe 10 or 12 years old, I came I uh, found a um, geologic timeline basically or a cosmic timeline in a book and I realized just how deep time is uh, as far as, you know, how recently we've shown up and it really rattled me and uh, really kind of left me questioning a lot of things. I, mean, I was like 10 or 12 years old and I was stunned by this and it really uh, kind of made me feel like I was a ghost because, uh, you know, the brevity of life sort of struck me. Um, nobody I know had died, but I got, I got the same sense of the body of life when I was very young. And, but I, I think looking back on that now that, you know, that was a religious experience. It was, it was face to face with reality. And, um, you know, I, I do think that that was religious in the sense that I think that, uh, when we connect with reality we're connecting with God is mm. what I think. Mm. And um so I think time does matter quite a bit. Um hope I've answered your question in a in a sense that's satisfying to you there.
1: Well it's it's your answer. So as long as you're satisfied I I'm well,
0: satisfied I just want to make sure that I heard the question right.
1: There's a character in here um named Tycho. Am I saying his name right? Tico. T- so I'm not saying it right. Um Yeah. So you kind of frame his logic in the way that many people approach both faith and science and like kind of his issues with Copernicus, but can you kind of break apart, not necessarily specifics of that unless you want to, but kind of the, who he was and how that mindset still affects the way that we do so many aspects of everything today. Yeah. 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 Um, Because I think that that's, it's really important, Uh, really important. Matter of fact, I'm, I highlighted almost the whole chapter because the thoughts behind that are...
0: I'm glad you liked it. Um, oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, especially... it
0: was... Oh, because it was new, you said?
1: I, except for... um, There's a... I watch a lot of sci-fi. So there's a, The Expanse, which is on Amazon now, but it was on something mm-hmm. else. There's like a, a station by a guy named Tycho or Tico or whatever. Okay. But you know, it's spelled the right. same way as well. So I was... Yeah, Anyway, named after him for
0: sure. Probably, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was a um 16th century astronomer He died in the first years of the 17th century, but he was he was the greatest European astronomer to never use a telescope. He died just a few years before the telescope was invented. Um, But he was he his career occurred after Copernicus died. So during these years, the Copernican theory, the idea that the sun was in the middle and the Earth around it was a new and radical idea. And astronomers and philosophers did not like Pernicus's idea uh, for a number of reasons. They had some really good reasons. Um, One of them was that all of Aristotelian physics and cosmology, which is what they were taught, uh, was a unified set of ideas, but it was grounded in this idea of the Earth at the center of the universe, or in the middle of the universe, I should say. Mm and so anyway, Copernicus upset that, right? Copernicus put the earth out around the sun and it disrupted the whole system of thought that had dominated universities for several hundred years. And so that was a problem. Mm-hmm. Also, the scientific evidence Copernicus had was was very thin and of a very strange kind. So there wasn't that much scientific evidence in favor of it. So Tycho rejected it, which was the, the majority opinion at the time. But for two reasons. One is that there was not much scientific evidence for it. Well, really three reasons. One, there wasn't much scientific evidence for it. Number two, it disrupted virtually everybody's ideas of what the world was like. Mm -hmm. But the third one was theological. And the third one was this. What people know about the Copernican theory, the idea that the sun sits in the middle and the earth goes around it. If that were true, Mm -hmm. if that were true, then the stars would have to be much, 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 much further away than previously thought. Mm -hmm. Now, the details of that are not important, but the point is, is if Copernicus is right, then there's a whole lot of empty space between Saturn, which was the highest planet, and the stars. Expanded that distance by almost a thousand times. Minimum. And this idea that the universe would have so much empty space in it, for Tycho was an argument against Copernicus because he thought no God would not possibly, make the universe with so much wasted space.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That was his argument. In other words, his theological assumptions about God interfered with his science and his, his ideas about God, God wouldn't possibly make a universe that is so out of a sense, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There's no, you know, God certainly wouldn't do that. Therefore, this scientific theory must be wrong. Yeah. You know, um, pitting his idea of God against science that way. And because he could not accept that God would do that, he rejected one of the greatest foundational scientific theories of history because of his theological assumptions.
1: With what you know of him. Do you think had he lived a little longer and had a telescope, he would have recanted? Or I don't I don't know how much you know about him. Like if he had you well, know in hindsight, a- <laughs> you know, if he's like that's an know, excellent question. In, like looks in it and goes, actually, I'm sorry. I was I was he wrong.
0: might have, but he had his own theory, a third theory of the universe. He proposed sort of a compromise theory between Aristotle and Copernicus, and he had a lot invested in that. Mm and that would have been really interesting to see if he would have come around i think he might have but it would have been extremely painful to him mm-hmm. cuz he had basically all of his professional career invested in a theory that galileo basically and really people around him proved to be wrong
1: huh yeah i just curious it's one of the it's one of the few things i wrote in the book was I wonder if he would have changed his mind, you know.
0: That's an excellent question. I've never thought of that before.
1: You just talked about scale and the blank space in between. And so I recently in September went to D.C. with my son. We toured everything. We went into the White House. We did all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I had never really comprehended, I think because no one had ever broken it down for me, just the actual scale, you know, because Elon Musk will be like, we're going to go to Mars, and if we launch right here, I can be there in 10 months. But I have to launch right right here by whatever it is, 2021, 22, whatever it is. Yeah, I don't think that humans are built to comprehend time at a scale that way or distances at a scale that way because it Mm -hmm. it breaks my brain. Um, The math checks out, but the numbers are so big that it's like, trying to comprehend how much interest. I'll get back to what I do. Bill Gates makes in a day. And for those, <laughs> and for those that want to know, it is literally a waste of his time. If he walked past a $100 bill, it is quite literally a waste of his time to lean down and pick it up. He makes more money if he was just going to where he was going to go that hundred dollars is not worth that half a second that it takes.
0: Wow! He literally he's making more than hundred dollars every half second.
1: Correct, and he needs yeah. to go wherever he's going to continue to do so. It's literally not worth his time. Wow! To pick, you know. So, but most people that aren't in banking are like that. It's a hundred dollars. I'm like, yeah, but he makes money at the second level, like not the yeah. annual level. He makes money. Right the total amount you can divide by seconds, not days, not years, not months. It's literally that much money. So can you, for those listening, kind of break down that, you know, if we're, if, if we're going to plant earth here or the sun here, yeah. the distance, because I, yeah. I love the metaphor and I didn't expect you to get, I found myself going, Oh, he's going to be in Asia or he's going to be, and so I just didn't really know where to expect you to get. Um, but I, right. I love it.
0: Well, what do I say? Do I say the sun, uh, basketball, do uh, I make this on a basketball? I think that's what I do. I'm
1: not sure that the object matters, but we can make it a basketball. Yeah, it it, it does. It would be, um, I think it's... Let me find it. There's a grapefruit. No, there's um there's a blueberry. There's a golf ball that doesn't float. Um, right. <laughs> I'm try, trying to find it. Let me see if I can find it's, it in my notes. Yeah, just, I
0: think, is it an 18-inch beach ball? There, I can't remember.
1: There is a beach ball. I don't remember the inches.
0: That's got to be the sun. If there's a beach ball, it's got to be the sun. There is a beach ball. Yeah, there is a beach ball. Okay. So imagine a smallest beach ball at um, the Washington Monument right there in, in, in downtown D.C. on the mall. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, the sun. So what we're going to do is we're going to imagine for ourselves uh, a scale model of the solar system. So if the sun is a 18-inch, say, beach ball, foot and a half across, something like that, smallish beach ball at the Washington Monument, then uh, the solar system itself could fit pretty snugly into downtown Washington, D.C., okay? Um, Certainly within the limits of the city of Washington, D.C., the solar system uh, would fit pretty well. Um, now I'm thinking that the sun was actually smaller than that, but I don't know. I can't remember how I did it. Do you have it there?
1: Uh, I'm just trying to find the page. It, I stopped it looking. We started talking. I'll find it. Um, da, 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 da. Where is it at?
0: Uh, what chapter
1: is that? I feel like it's three.
0: Um, oh, that far That far in. It might be three. Here we go. Here we go. It's chapter, drum roll please, six.
1: Dang it. That was way I was halfway there. Yeah.
0: Okay. So if the sun were here we go, if the sun were it's on page 46, if the sun were shrunk down to basketball size Mm. and placed at the base of the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., Earth would be a peppercorn about 80 feet away. A blueberry at a distance of about 1600 feet at the edge of the Lincoln Memorial Reflecting Pool would serve nicely as Uranus. And the entire solar system, as I said a moment ago, would fit within the limits of the National Mall, including Pluto and comets and so forth. So the thing that that I'm trying to uh, communicate is not so much the size of the solar system, which itself is beyond human understanding but the distance to the closest star. So we've got the solar system fitting pretty nicely into downtown Washington, Mm D.C. The next closest star, uh, Proxima Centauri, um, would be in Hawaii on that scale.
1: From D.C. to Hawaii.
0: From D.C. to Hawaii. The next closest star would be on the eastern edge of the Big Island of Hawaii. Mm
1: And then just time out. So for those not in Virginia, and I am, because um, when I lived in Texas, I don't even under, know that I would have understand that reference. So center of the Eastern sea, Seaboard, literally off the Atlantic coast from Washington D.C., you can be at the ocean within, well, with no traffic, within a matter of minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just for for scale, there. Um, okay. So we're at Hawaii, and that is the next star, the
0: next closest star. If the sun was a basketball in downtown Washington D.C. The next closest star is about the size of a bowling ball, and it's sitting on the beach on the Big Island of Hawaii. Mm. That is the scale. The, the, that is the um, ratio of you know star size to empty space between star size. It's, it's, uh,
1: huh.
0: When I first made that calculation, I made it back when I first started teaching astronomy 15, 16, 17 years ago. I sat down and did that calculation, and I thought it was wrong. I really thought that was wrong. You thought it was too far or it. too short? It, it was too far. I thought, I thought if the sun were a basketball in Atlanta, Georgia, that the next star would be maybe in South Georgia. Hmm. You know, 400 miles away, 300 miles away, but it turns out it's 10 times that distance. It's 3,000 miles away. Hmm. So if the sun is a basketball, the next closest star is between three and 4,000 miles away,
1: closer to four, actually. And then if I was going to drive there, hypothetically, because you can't drive on the ocean, but let's assume we can, because literally we just made um, a peppercorn, the earth, so we can do whatever we want to do. Um, How long would it take me to get there? Well, at
0: 60 miles an hour?
1: No, no, it's just real, real time. Like how many years, light years?
0: Oh, oh, gosh. Oh, how many years if you were to drive there? Oh, it'd be Or not not, not
1: necessarily drive, but if I could get there as fast as I possibly could. Like if okay. I could get there as, Say
0: in the fa- in the fastest possible space probe yeah. that
1: we've got. Yeah, or or even you talk about um in your hypothetical time situation earlier, um a solar-sailed laser-driven Yes. Uh I don't even know how that works. On I have no idea how yes. that works or how lasers would this, drive it, kinetic it's a, energy, it's but a, whatever.
0: It's a speculative form of interstellar uh, transport, basically, that people are working yeah, on.
1: Yeah. My first thought when I read it is wouldn't the laser burn through the sail? And then I realized I probably don't understand what lasers are outside <laughs> of Star Wars. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> well, at, 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 at the fastest possible, uh, you know, of, of the space probes we actually have right now,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it would take you billions of years to get there. Mm. At least hundreds of millions of years to get there.
1: Huh.
0: Going and that's that's it moving like 20,000 miles an hour.
1: Yeah. And if I could move as fast as light, how fast and 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 remain constituted?
0: If 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 you can move as fast as light, uh
1: huh,
0: uh, you would get there in a little over four years.
1: That's still insane. That's still either way. Yeah. That's still insane from from DC to Hawaii in four years is still insane. You know what I mean? Like just yeah, yeah, yeah. That's insane. Um, so I want to ask a couple rapid fire questions and then I do have one very loaded question. I don't know which way you want to take it and I'll let you go wherever you want to go with it. Um, okay. But I'm excited to hear your answer. So just rapid fire, just because I have questions. You're a scientist. Let's do this thing. Is Pluto a planet? Yes or no? Because I need it no. to be. No.
0: Why? No, I'm very sorry. Emotionally, I feel you. Emotionally, I was hurt by the decision back in 2006. <laughs> I was hurt. <laughs> My son was six years old at the time. Uh-huh. And he, dad happened to it. He thought that Pluto had disappeared. Cause he heard that Pluto wasn't a planet anymore and he so had, ceases and to exist. Big. Yeah. <laughs> no, so thing. emotionally I was also hurt because I loved, I love Pluto, right? It's the oddball, right? He's the oddball. Uh-huh. He's the weird uncle in the family that you keep upstairs, you know, when nice people come over, you know, <laughs> He's,
1: uh, and I really have a
0: soft spot.
1: Do I used to teach it that, that way. You should
0: talk about the the
1: what was that? Do people do that, Uncle? You got to go upstairs. <laughs> Don't come down here for three hours.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got nice people coming over. Just, just stay in the basement or stay stay in the attic or
1: something. Your family, but yeah, barely. that's what Pluto
0: was because 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 Pluto broke all the rules, all the planet rules. Huh. Um, And I won't go into those right now, but there are certain patterns that you see in the solar system and certain rules that kind of apply and Pluto broke all of them. And so he was kind of beloved for that reason, you know, Uh, but also a little bit, uh, you know, you know, black sheep. So emotionally, I was I was saddened by that. But scientifically, I feel like it was the right, exactly the right move to make. Fair enough. I was I was split.
1: That's fair enough. Yeah, I. I want it because I learned Mavim Schnup from Save by the Bell. I don't know how old you mm-hmm. are, but there was a, a mnemonic, you know, Mercury like Mavim Schnup, and if you spell it out, it's the whole thing. But you need the the Pluto for the because if not, right. there's no way to end that word. Like it, it ends on it, a vowel, it, it, and you it can't ends
0: nice and tight with a P.
1: Yeah, it's great because there's a. You end of breath yeah. or your lips close or what, and it doesn't without it. So you, that's fine. Whatever. I'm mad about it. Well, it, realistically, is there a chance that we just haven't seen something and it would be replaced by something within our solar system? Or is that just out of the realm of possibility? Like we've looked at everything we can look at. Do you mean is
0: there is there evidence for another planet?
1: Yeah. Oh, I mean, whether like, or not there is or not. Yeah. Like, so could we just substitute something else for Pluto? Like, or is it unrealistic to think that we haven't already looked and it's done?
0: No, it's not unrealistic. In fact, there is some evidence. I haven't followed up on this, but uh, six months or a year ago, Hmm. uh, I I read several articles that said there's some pretty good evidence that there is actually a ninth, uh, like quite massive uh, planet further out. Really? But it's indirect evidence. It, it's good statistically though it's it seems pretty compelling it's evidence
1: um, like the way that they found uh, all the other outer planets like neptune and whatnot where they're like yeah we can see where it's being bent by the gravity of other things and that type of well, thing. evidence like what that, this amounts
0: no? to is what this amounts to is this you know when you're in a boat and you go across the water you leave a wake
1: mm-hmm.
0: right the boat has a there's a wake behind it yeah um so and so what we basically see out beyond neptune there's something called the kuiper belt and it's like an asteroid belt. It's just got hundreds of thousands of tiny icy objects in it, okay? And we see a wake in the Kuiper belt. So something went through it. As if something passed through it and, and put these things on certain orbits, that either it's just a really nice coincidence that they all have these odd little orbits to make it look like something passed through, or something actually did pass through.
1: And push them into these odd orbits, I know you said you hadn't really dug into it much, but I'm, i I want to clarify when you say pass through like we can repetitively see that something is passing through or this wake is like frozen in time as it orbits
0: well w- what you have when I say wake, what I mean is that is that there's been a dis it looks like there's been a disruption
1: mm-hmm.
0: of orbits of, of of the objects in the Kuiper belt, okay, like something more massive than the average Kuiper Belt object passed through and disrupted these orbits, and so what we're talking about is not like a static thing. We're talking about uh, something that the dynamics of these orbits is a little bit unusual. Okay. And either it's just a really nice coincidence. It's 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 like flipping a coin fifty times and getting heads fifty times in a row, right? That could happen. Un, un-
1: unlikely, but.
0: Unlikely, you know, either either the coin is not fair,
1: uh-huh.
0: or uh, you just got really lucky, and something it was just a coincidence. Yeah, that's kind of what we're talking about here.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, um,
0: the, the, the the odds aren't quite that strong, but something like that.
1: sure. Uh, so next question: Should it matter whether or not there is life outside of planet Earth, either at a religious level or at a science level? Because realistically, um, I don't believe I will live long enough for it to ever matter to me. But should it matter? as a species, if that is a thing, either for God or for science? Well, for Um, science it must, but you know what I mean.
0: I think, yeah, it will. I think it does matter. Um, I think that if we actually, I think, in other words, I think there would be theological consequences of intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. How so? Because um, I think that it would say something about God's creativity, about the richness of creation, Mm -hmm. about uh, if there's one, there's going to be more. And um, I think also that it would tend to have a unifying effect not just within Christianity, but I think within all, at least Western religions, I think there would be sort of a, you know, maybe I'm just too optimistic, but I think hmm. that there would be a sort of unifying effect. Huh. Um, and I also think that it would, there would be, and I also think that although there would be a massive freak out by some people, I think in the long run, there would be a unifying effect on human beings because we would begin to see ourselves as not so different from each other anymore. Yeah. Our similarities would would be, would be much more evident than our differences. Yeah. Cause um,
1: we can look at a different, yeah, we can look at a different analog and go, well, I'm not that like, I'm not a deer. I'm also not that like, I'm just
0: right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but, but I, but I do want to say this with this question that whether there is or is not intelligent life out there, either answer is pretty weird. Right there's not a non-strange option here. Mm-hmm. If we are alone, wow, because we're really alone. Because <laughs> there's a lot of space out there, and if we're not, then wow.
1: There's a concept that we don't have time to break apart because I try to be concise, and this has gone slightly longer than I normally do. But I'm really, I'm really enjoying this. So I hope you have a, l- a few more minutes. There's sure. a concept called. Uh, and I, no, it's not a concept. It's a quote from someone that says, "Well, he's not even not wrong." Or no, he's not. He's not yes. even wrong. He's not even not wrong. Not even wrong. Yeah. yeah. So as you're teaching, and so you now, do you teach science or do you teach faith or do, what do you, what do you
0: teach? Right now, I'm, I'm in my office at the college. I teach physics here okay. at the college. So I teach science here, but I'm the uh, pastor for adult education at my church. Okay. So I end up teaching a lot in church too.
1: Yeah. So. As people come to ask you questions, and I probably ask some of these questions as well, probably even today, what is one or two of the biggest misconceptions that you're like, the question's not bad. It's just the question, the answers, like you're not even wrong. Like it's just yeah. poorly. What are yeah. those? If, if you could if you could remove a question or two that comes up where you're like, yeah, I've heard that before. Again, you're not even wrong. What, what would those be?
0: Yeah. Well, any, pretty much any question, and I could be more specific, I suppose, but any question that assumes that what we call the god of the gaps okay and this is always happening i get a question and the assumption behind the question is that where science has understood something uh god is not present that god is somehow a magician that does all this magic stuff that science can't explain Mm -hmm. um the god of the gaps is a fallacy and it basically says that um that God lives in those places that we don't understand. Like to think about Newton, at the time of Newton, the origin of life and the origin of species was a mystery. So, you know, Newton kind of figured out his rules about how planets go around other planets. But for Newton, you know, God was obviously had made us human beings and there was no explanation for that so that's where god god didn't really keep the planets going yeah all right god god was responsible for life but as time goes on you know as darwin shows up oh now we have a scientific explanation for uh you know origin of species so god's not there anymore right so questions like um like what's a good question basically creation revolution Mm -hmm. you know that's the big question was the world created or did it evolve the assumption being that if it evolved then god certainly had nothing to do with it Mm -hmm. because why would god do it that way that doesn't make sense you know the idea that the the two are opposed any question that comes out of that
1: yeah uh yeah
0: i just have to you know bite my tongue and Good. Smile and turn it into a pastoral moment, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: sometimes. <laughs> yeah. You, you <laughs> turn it into up. you turn it into many more questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and ask. Yeah. for But I love I never heard that. I, I highlighted wrote down. I actually have it taped right up here. You can't see it. But to the right of the camera yeah. here um, of just to be mindful, because I ask so many questions with so many people and I read so many things. And um, I think it's a good maximum to kind of you know be, make sure what you're asking matters, you, you kind of thing. Um, at least for yeah. me. And
0: and 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 if you want a specific question, it was it would be like the one I talk about in the book where the woman asks, "Uh, but how the Big Bang gets started? Like, mm-hmm. what's happened here is that God has been pushed back to this point before Big Bang, mm-hmm. and that you know God's responsible for that." maybe everything is sort of, you know, went on its own naturally. At least God got things started. That yeah. that to me is a sign that there's some god of the gaps thinking.
1: All right, so final question. I, I think. Uh so with your training, um when you look at things, you see things working in a way that I just don't understand. Like when I look at bank accounts numbers that ticker across on CNN mm-hmm. or whatever like, I see that and I actually see other things than I think what yes. my wife would see or maybe what you would see. Sure, and so of course. Um, I mean, and so does she, like when she looks at that stupid thing on Grey's Anatomy and she's like, it's not even plugged in. That's not how you hang a bag. And chemo's not that color. (laughs) Like that's chemo's not that color. That's just there for TV. Like she's like, there's, there's four colors and none of them are that, you know, she sees things that I don't see and she sees wonder and mystery differently. And as do you. And so as a scientist with all of the information that you have about physics and atomic science and astronomy, where do you look out at night Um, and you're like, this is where I see wonder. This is where I see the divine. This is how I'm still amazed. Like, what is that for you?
0: You mean, what is it that I actually see? Like that's uh, different can, than what a non-scientist take, would see.
1: No, I guess maybe, but um, you, with what your knowledge is, so a lot of people, the further they dig into science, and you allude to it in your book a lot, you know, they just move away from any faith or religion because they need the data sets nice and clean. Uh, but okay, I, but, yeah. but I think I think with the right mentality, and you do this in Isaiah a bit as well, where you're like, you know, I see things. This this you know, I could take this and read it this way, or I could also take it and go, how beautiful is this. But with you know, when you're at home watching your kids, you're with your wife or whatever. You're literally not saying anything. You're just looking up at the stars or reflecting, you know, in your office or whatever. What is it that you're like? Oh man, this is where the lo- I cannot wait for science to get here because this is going to be wonderful. Or maybe that's the wrong question. You're like, this is how I see wonder. And I ask that because you talk about wonder a few different times. You yeah. begin talking about the wonder of God with a story um, about the you know um, the sun setting. Uh, somewhere in the Blue Ridge Mountains, uh, and there's a really funny story with your parents. And you know, I think either your mom or your dad's like, "Why do you got to? Come on my now! Mom, yeah. Why you got to do that? Don't be there, yeah. <laughs> Stop it!" Yeah. Uh, but you also talk about wonder at the tail end. You know, as you're trying to reconcile it of, you know, there is wonder and glory, and it's beautiful. So my question is, where do you see that? Like personally, well,
0: I see it. I see it pretty much everywhere. Um, and, I'll, and I'll make two comments about that. One of the main places I see it that to this day I I, I really can't quite believe is that um, everything that we experience you know our living body our buildings the sky the clouds cats planets galaxies the- <laughs> damn everything
1: <You> said cats <laughs> cats yeah <laughs> I have a cat I love cats
0: um, we are all, the the thing that kills me is that we are. Basically composed of like three different particles.
1: Hmm.
0: Everything, when you break it down, is is you know there's a universal sort of particles that just show up everywhere. But th- it's amazing to me that from such utter simplicity, such complexity can come. Hmm. That to me is it's just a it's very simple thought, but it occurs to me nearly every day at some point. Nice. Another thing. Is That when I do look around, you know, yeah, I I do see things differently than you would or other people would just because of my own particular training Mm -hmm. but What science has taught me? and what Relatively few scientists will say although it motivates them every day is that with everything that we know about stuff the more we know, it's like the knowledge is not a closed system. It's not like, oh, we know that now. We can put that on the shelf. Every time we think that's true, we come to realize that that is not true and that yeah. that needs to be taken down because there are more questions.
1: Yeah,
0: Questions multiply as fast or faster than our knowledge does. And so looking out and and seeing things that you might be able to understand mm-hmm. um, is a pleasure, but you have to also admit the pleasure of not knowing what's yeah. beyond what you know. Yeah. And that, that to me is, it, that to me is everywhere around me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Let's wind it down. Where would you send people to Paul to uh, well, buy the book? Um I, I didn't read your first one but I'm I'm going to buy it now. I don't I I'm, that's going to happen. Where would you send people to though to get a hold of you, read what you do, um, you know, listen to other things. Like where would you send people?
0: Uh there's a site. Uh my website is pwallace.net. Okay. P is in Paul
1: Wallace.net. Perfect. And
0: everything you need is there. It's all
1: Perfect. There. So I will link to that in the show notes. Well good. I I have enjoyed it. I I, there's so many more things I want to talk about that we don't really have time for, you know, flat earth. And uh, d- there's a whole bunch of things <laughs> in there. Uh, when I read that, I'm like, yes. And that analogy with the boat, and we don't have to explain it here that people go by the, if you want to read the analogy that he gives, um, it's actually the the logic in its simplicity. I, I remember I read it and I was like, and that makes sense. Have I not oh, thought of this? How the before? boat
0: disappears over the horizon. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. But we won't break that down. People need to go buy the book. Um, so, uh, yeah uh, thank you for writing the book thank you for making it readable you're welcome yeah very much so um and uh is written in such a way that my son read pieces of it with me and so Good. i love that you know that's not the case for most of the books that i read so thank you again for coming on i really appreciate you're welcome. your time
0: Have a great time
1: thank you amazing is that like just to think about the wonder of science and the wonder of it all and to feel you know for me i used to would feel small when i would think about god but the more that i learn and the smaller that i realize i am the bigger that i feel the more not important the more seen i guess the more known that i feel and i hope and pray that you feel the same way like as you further question faith and further learn new things and wrestle with scripture and wrestle with God, whatever you want to call that God. And I pray that you find wonder like you've never found it before. And it's beautiful. Um, I continue to look for it. And I think that's it. You just look for it. You just look for it. And you'll see it. I know I have. Special thanks to the Dodds for the use of their music. Uh, I was blown away when I realized that they currently reside in my hometown, and so we chatted back and forth on the emails about that, which is kind of neat. However, special thanks to them for their use of their music in today's episode. You'll find their music in the links in the show notes and the Spotify playlist and iTunes playlist and all the playlists. And uh, again, thank you to those of you that um, you know that decided you know, I really should hit that Patreon button or Glow. Either way works and uh, become a supporter of the show. Uh, my, I have big goals for this year, and I need your help to do so. So thank you in advance. I'll talk with you next week. It's going to be a great January. Be blessed, everybody.